0: This is Who Deserves a Monument, Episode 6.
1: And she said as a young debutante, it was a place that you didn't just walk in. You had to almost be asked in or invited in. And she talked about the carpet in particular, because she had never felt such deep plush on a carpet. So she said, you literally sank into the carpet, and you were just surrounded by all this kind of high couture, very elegant fashion. And as a young woman, you know, that's
0: what you read in magazines. This was the Charm Center, the glamorous Pennsylvania Avenue dress shop run by Victorine Quill Adams. During a time when Black women were barred from shopping in many department stores, or treated as less than if they did, The Charm Center was like stepping into an oasis. Here's Ida Jones, the archivist at Morgan State University again. That
1: shopping at that era and in that stage was actually an experience. It wasn't a matter of you just pulling something off the rack and buying it. You were fitted. Things were altered. You were looking for size, shape, and color. So it was a full-blown experience in terms of which you actually had an audience with a salesperson, and therefore you were dedicated to making an appointment to come in, and you were basically catered to as the way royalty would be catered to.
0: An elegant dress shop by day? was something very different at night. Before I tell you more about the Charm Center after dark, you must understand some of the other characters and conditions in our story. But first, a monumental moment, the 19th Amendment. All women technically got the right to vote with the ratification of the 19th Amendment by Congress in 1920. The fight begun by Frances Harper continued well into another generation. And despite the law being ratified by three-quarters of states, legal fights and voter suppression continued at the state level pretty much all the way until the 1960s. President Johnson's famous We Shall Overcome speech on the eve of the Civil Rights Act describes the situation well.
2: Every device of which human ingenuity is capable has been used to deny this right. The Negro citizen may go to register only to be told that the day is wrong, or the hour is late, or the official in charge is absent. And if he persists and if he manages to present himself to the registrar, he may be disqualified because he did not spell out his middle name or because he abbreviated a word on the application. And if he manages to fill out an application, he is given a test. The registrar is the sole judge of whether he passes this test. He may be asked to recite the entire Constitution or explain the most complex provisions of state law. And even a college degree cannot be used to prove that he can read and write. For the fact is that the only way to pass these barriers is to show a white skin.
0: Maryland didn't ratify the 19th Amendment until 1941, 21 years after it became federal law. And then state lawmakers waited another 17 years to certify that vote and close the case in 1958. So while black women could legally vote, voter suppression meant that politics in Baltimore was very much a white man's game. White men still posted up at the polls to threaten black voters with violence. You could be fired or evicted simply for exercising your right to vote as a black person. You could pay your expensive poll tax and register a year in advance as required, knowing full well that just before the election, the state would likely bill you for back taxes that you couldn't afford. With such incredibly difficult choices, hopeless voters felt they had little power.
1: And so he could deliver African-American votes literally by paying them off or just simply just collecting them like anyone would like, pick flowers. So he really had picked out strategically who he wanted to be mayor, could eventually become governor, city council persons. He was that person.
0: For more than 30 years, Baltimore was unofficially run by a political boss named Jack Pollock. Born of Polish Jewish immigrants on Baltimore's east side, Pollock was orphaned at age 15. He quit school and made his way as a boxer, traveling the country competing for $1,500 purses in lightweight title fights. His rough and tumble ways helped him make a name for himself as a whiskey smuggler during prohibition. He learned how to assess loyalty and how to discard of the disloyals as needed. Between 1921 and 1926, Pollock was arrested 13 times on charges that ranged from assault to murder. At one point, he was indicted for the murder of a watchman in a liquor hijacking incident. The case, however, never came to trial, and Mr. Pollock's arrest records mysteriously disappeared from the state's attorney's office. Pollock cut his teeth in politics working for William Kieran, then Baltimore's reigning political boss. He tore down posters put up by Kieran's opponents. When he moved two years later to the rapidly growing Northwest area of the city, where many Jewish residents had settled, he became Kieran's district leader. Mr. Pollock soon became an independent power on his own and Baltimore's first Jewish political boss. His machine was based in the favors he did for residents of the Northwest. Here's Ida Jones again.
1: So people would literally be paid cash money, from my understanding, to be able to say they're going to go in the booth and vote for the candidate, or literally get paid money during various campaign elections that you're going to guarantee the vote. So there was actual exchange of cash, which we now know is clearly illegal towards that. And then, of course, it would kind of enrich businesses, small business owners, if they were to get certain kinds of favor from city legislation or governmental legislations, whether it be on tax breaks or other things like that.
0: Pollock reigned supreme in the area for almost four decades, building up a personal fortune in real estate speculation and the insurance business. His power reached its height during the 1940s and 1950s when he helped his boyhood friend, Thomas D'Alessandro Jr., father of one Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, be elected mayor of Baltimore three times. That's how powerful the block of voting was in the
1: state of Maryland throughout the greater part of the 20th century. So you would enter city politics on some level in Baltimore, then you would rise to be the mayor, then that was a trajectory straight to governorship. So Polak knew very clearly that if he could maintain that hold of who got
0: what, then he would have access to state power. How could someone ever compete with the power he'd built? It would have to be someone who gave you joy and hope and also fistfuls of cash. Someone like little Willie Adams. Willie is an unlikely hero in this story for a number of reasons.
3: Will Adams was raised by his grandparents. His grandfather was a sharecropper, um, was exploited as so many sharecroppers were. He absolutely adored his grandmother, who really put an absolute premium on education.
0: Willie was born in rural Zebulon, North Carolina, during World War I. His grandmother thought they were getting a raw deal as sharecroppers and wanted Willie to escape that fate. Here's Willie's biographer, Mark Cheshire, explaining the toils of sharecropping.
3: You sold what you raised and the balance based on, you know, your expenditures during the year, you backed out those and that the rest was your profit. And often you, you ended up in the red um, and the grandmother felt that he was exploited because of a lack of math skills. And so she put a premium on math skills and he absolutely took that to heart. He just became a devotee of numbers and mathematics and the power of all things mathematics.
0: Willie was only 15 when his grandparents died, and he needed a place to live. He took money he had saved from collecting scrap cotton and fixing up bicycles and moved to East Baltimore with his uncle who said he could stay there until he got himself established. He went to Dunbar High School for a time, but he needed to make money. So he found work packing rags for shipment, like literally stomping as many rags as possible into a shipping container. It was filthy and dangerous work.
3: At that point, tuberculosis, um, the fatality rate was really high. He was concerned that, that could lead to his contraction of the disease. He wanted to find another way to make money. Um, there was a dearth of jobs and opportunities for African-Americans. He decided, having seen people running, buying numbers, basically the lottery, the legal numbers game, that he could run numbers. He could sell them to people, get them to the bank,
0: the bank being the leaders of the organization, like organized crime.
3: He was way too young. There were various competing organizations that did that. Will had, at the time, been re- working for a bike shop, helping a gentleman repair uh, bikes. The guy, the owner of this shop said, you know, I can no longer employ Will. We're running out of money. You know, the depression, fewer people are buying. But I'll back him. If, if he is responsible for the loss of any money, I will effectively insure him.
0: So, Willie Adams begins running the numbers in Baltimore for an organization. Every day, he collects bets at newsstands, barbershops, corner stores, and dry cleaners. Thousands and thousands of people making bets for as little as two cents, dreaming of hitting it big. The day's results at Pimlico Racetrack determine the winning three numbers, so everybody knows if they're a winner or not as soon as the day's races are over. Eventually, Willie hits a snag and has to find his own book of bets to cover a loss. Well, his business takes off. With his sharp math brain, he can play out untold bets and scenarios in his mind. He's better than anyone, and most importantly, he always pays out, often the same day. Still, it was unheard of for an African American to run his own numbers organization.
3: And let's say that there's a lot of action on a number you'd go and lay off on that number with another organization to basically insure against it so if a bunch of people hit you've also got a bet on that number so it's a lot of strategy of course if you failed to to pay somebody on a winning wager you were in serious trouble um you know death threats or if not death um, there was a lot at stake a lot of people were gambling you know trying to make make rent and whatnot based on winning those numbers. So there's a a lot of responsibility and a lot at stake.
0: Running the numbers made Willie Adams an incredibly powerful man in Baltimore. Victorine Quill, the proprietor of the Charm Center that we met at the top of the show, married Willie Adams in 1935. Unlike Willie, Victorine was a straight arrow, a devout Catholic, a formally educated woman with a bachelor's degree from Morgan State College and a teacher in Baltimore City Schools for a decade. By marrying Willie, who was making $1,000 a day in the 30s, she was also now a woman of status and financial means. Oprah says, getting rich doesn't change you. It just amplifies what's already inside of you. If you're awful, wealth makes you really awful. But if you're kind and generous, wealth makes you very kind and generous. Victorine, she was already great. So coming into wealth just made her that much more so. Here's Ida Jones again. In addition to being the archivist at Morgan State University, Ida wrote a book about Victorine Adams called The Power of the Ballot. In the sense that
1: education or higher education was a very rare opportunity for people to attain, not just simply African Americans, you have very few working class white persons who were able to access education at the higher level, I mean, post high school. For the most part. And then in some rural parts, not even past elementary school because the requirements of them to help, quote, kick into the family affected one's ability to go to school. So it wasn't that people didn't have capacity intellectually. They did not have opportunity in terms of time. So for Victorine Adams be born in 1912, to be able to go from a working class family, neither one of her parents had a formal college education. But for her to be the first generation to be able to go to college, the expectation was
0: that you are now going to take what you've learned and bring it back to enrich others. While things were good for Victorine, she would dedicate the rest of her life to making sure things were good for every other Black person. As we know, there was a lot of room for improvement. It's time for a monumental moment, redlining. As we learned in Episode 5, separate but equal was never a reality. This definitely included housing. Housing discrimination, deciding who could live where, worked with surgical precision to literally carve out a better life for white residents. I'm curious, what's your community like today? Do white people live in some neighborhoods and black and brown people in others? Have you ever thought about why it's that way? Here's a piece of a Real News Network interview with Antero Piatilla, who wrote a really important book on the subject called Not in My Neighborhood.
4: In a very peculiar way, Baltimore became a laboratory for residential segregation. Baltimore, in 1910, was the first American city that enacted a city council law requiring that each residential neighborhood be segregated. Uh, About 40 other cities copied Baltimore's law, uh, mostly in the old Confederacy. And then, in 1917, the Supreme Court said this approach is a wrong one. By that time, restrictive covenants had become the standard, homeowners joining together and saying, there are certain people we don't want as our neighbors. So,
0: I live in one of these neighborhoods with a covenant. The people who owned houses in my neighborhood in the 20s, 30s, and 40s agreed not to sell their homes to Black people or Jewish people. While the Supreme Court outlawed such covenants in 1948, the city and my neighborhood are incredibly segregated today. Once people were formally separated into white neighborhoods and non-white neighborhoods or Jewish neighborhoods and non-Jewish neighborhoods, the private real estate market could give higher values to white properties on white blocks. And they did. But while the private real estate market is highly complicit, it's the federal government that's really responsible for the nail in the coffin of black home ownership. When Willie and Victorine got married in 1935, the nation was in the grips of the Great Depression. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal programs aimed to turn things around. Let us unite in banishing fear. That was no easy task. Have justified our cause. You people must have faith. Together, we
2: cannot fail.
0: One program sought to provide low-interest, federally-insured loans to save people from foreclosure and promote home buying. Great. As a way to protect federal lenders from risky loans, the federal government's Homeowners Loan Corporation, drew detailed maps of 239 cities, dividing neighborhoods into various real estate risk categories. To rate an area for loanworthiness, they looked at the age and condition of housing, but also the race, ethnicity, class, and religion of residents. Having segregated neighborhoods made this much easier. Homer Hoyt became the chief economist for the Federal Housing Administration. His rankings of the most and least bankable races and ethnicities look suspiciously like the lists that eugenicists had been publishing for decades. Eugenicists are people who believe that certain races are biologically superior and that mankind should therefore engage in selective breeding and selective sterilization to better society. The neighborhood maps were color-coded to show who lived in what area. Here's a clip from an NPR code switch story about it.
4: Green meant best area, best people, aka businessmen. Blue meant good people, like white-collar families. Yellow meant a declining area with working-class families. And red meant detrimental influences, hazardous, like foreign-born people, low-class whites, and most significantly, Negroes. Again and again on these HOLC maps, one of the most consistent criteria for redlined neighborhoods is the presence of black and brown people. Let's be clear. Studies show that people who lived in red-lined areas were not necessarily more likely to default on their mortgages, but redlining made it difficult, if not impossible, to buy or refinance.
0: So areas with lots of white, wealthy Christian people were seen as most favorable, marked with green on the map. Areas with many Black residents were marked in red. Red marked the areas deemed dangerous, so federally insured lenders, the gold standard with lowest interest rates, refused to lend in those areas. This is where the term redlining came from. The only loan products available to Black families were subprime predatory loans. These were loans with crazy interest rates and crazy terms. Often, if you were late on one payment, you lost your home and forfeited your equity.
4: So landlords abandon their properties, city services become unreliable, in most places, crime increases, and property values drop. All of these conditions fester for 30 years as white people flee to the brand-new suburbs popping up all over the country. And all of this was perfectly legal.
0: This is systemic racism, and it was rampant in Baltimore. Its effects plague the city and the nation today. Homeownership is one of the best tools for building wealth, especially intergenerational wealth, that gets passed and all down of this and not really taxed legal. much. To this day, white people and black people making the same income have a huge gap in overall wealth. Black families have been pushed out to the margins of cities, to industrial areas with poor air quality and contaminated water, with lower values assigned to their homes. Their schools received less funding from property taxes. Where you live and who owns your home affects your health, your safety, and your education. So why do I share this story about housing with you? Because all of these decisions about housing and about schools, and about how local and state and federal resources are spent, are made by elected officials. Elected officials who are pretty much all white. Carl Murphy, remember him from the last episode? He saw a missed opportunity in Baltimore's 1943 election it wasn't just about voter registration, it was about voter turnout. Fewer than 40% of registered Black voters in the 4th District cast ballots that year. If just 50% had voted, all three Black candidates would have won their city council seats. Instead, none of them did. Carl Murphy issued a call to the Black community. He said, It might be well to begin now an intensive door-to-door drive to get newcomers registered and prepared to vote. Victorine Adams's ears perked up. She was looking for a way to make a big difference in her community. She also heard a minister named Adam Clayton Powell speak about a black swing vote strategy, and it resonated with her. Here's David Taft Terry. We met him in the last episode. He's a professor at Morgan State University.
5: Victorine Adams talks about hearing Adam Clayton Powell, for example, speak. Adam Clayton Powell had become uh, the first African-American to be a congressman from New York in 1944, but he had also been pastor and uh, the inheritor in many of the same ways as King was in Atlanta.
2: Some of you say to me, well, I'm not like you. I'm not a congressman, I haven't got education, uh, I haven't got work, uh, uh, but you're a human being. And you know what you've got? You've got in your hand the power to use your vote and to use even
1: those few cents you get from welfare to spend them only where you
5: want to spend them. So, uh, when congressmen Reverend Adam Clayton Powell begins to make speaking tours and speaking circuits across the South, talking about not simply the importance of voting, but of grassroots organizing, and the need for black men and women in the South to organize their brothers and sisters into voting blocks and to find ways to use uh, uh, that political power, that political block mentality, to force some of the changes that they could otherwise and previously have only asked for prior to realizing their sort of voting strength.
0: It's as good a time as any for change in Baltimore. The black population in Baltimore is surging. Black leaders organize a march on the Capitol in Annapolis in 1942 and politicians take notice. The heroics of black soldiers like the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II fighting against white supremacy abroad make it easier to fight at home Jack Pollock, the political boss, his stronghold is beginning to show signs of weakness. And across the South, the primary vehicles for voter suppression, poll taxes and white primaries, are abolished by the Supreme Court. Riding this wave in 1946, Victorine Adams organizes the Colored Women's Democratic Campaign Committee, whose motto is, if democracy is worth fighting for, it's worth voting for. With this committee, she's determined to include women of all political parties, economic and marital statuses, religious affiliations, workforce experiences, and complexions. She's determined to educate them on the issues that matter and equip them to make meaningful change. It's the beginning of an incredible sisterhood. In fact, women are initiated into the club much like a sorority, with candlelight rituals, scripture readings, and oaths. This takes us back to the Charm Center, Here's David Taft Terry.
5: If you wanted to make an impact, one of the easiest ways you could do so as a debutante in the 1950s was to be outfitted for your prom or for your ball at Charm Center. So when this woman of this sort of uh, resonance then turned to you and suggested that you participate in this photo registration drive, or when this woman whose uh, small storefront on Pennsylvania Avenue, locked her door in the evening so that they could have a voter registration meeting in that same space. And when you saw this woman you know, knocking on doors to speak to your mother and your sister and your grandmother about the importance of going downtown and registering to vote, that had a power. You know, She didn't just show up when it was time to vote, she was part of that community life. Somebody like Victorine Adams was well-placed to make her commitment as real and as authentic as anyone else uh, in that time period.
0: That's right. During the day, Victorine outfitted debutantes and celebrities like Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday in the finest fashions. But with the door locked and the curtains drawn at night, her shop became a forum, a training ground for would-be voters and a school for developing their political acumen. The Charm Center, with its plush carpeting and couture fashions, welcomed large gatherings of women to learn about the political process and harness their power. They studied sample ballots, they practiced using voting machines, and eventually, as their numbers and influence grew, they met with candidates and discussed legislation that was important to the Black community. Here's David Terry again.
5: It's quite natural and quite logical that she saw, in many of the same ways, for example, that the uh, folks at the Afro American newspaper did the blending of entrepreneurialism and activism and community service the idea that their connections uh, particularly with Victorine Adams in high society uh, with the black women who who uh, frequented her dress shops and with her husband's connections these things could be used to be brought to bear on the need of the community to mobilize and organize and educate uh, these tens of thousands of Black people who were coming to Baltimore every year into a powerful voting block that would make City Hall sort of listen to them in ways that they had not been before.
0: Outside of the Charm Center, the Colored Women's Democratic Campaign Committee, I'll just call it the committee from now on, took to the streets. According to the AFRO, the organization worked door to door, bell to bell, housewife to housewife. Victorine said she wanted to get out the vote to elect more people who looked like her. Even by 1946, there were still few Black elected officials in Baltimore or in Maryland. There were no Black men or women in Maryland's congressional delegation. There were no Black women on the city council, in the office of mayor, or in the state legislature. Victorine's strategy was vertical integration of Black women, from street-level mobilizers to leaders and strategists. The committee took out an ad in the Afro that said, don't be a slacker. Exercise your authority by registering and voting to eliminate racial discrimination. Victorine and her street teams registered more than 5,000 Black voters in their first two years in operation. The committee also assigned delegates to attend all public hearings, like the school, parks, and public safety boards. Meetings where white people often gathered to make decisions that affected black people. At one park board meeting, the local Neighborhood Improvement Association sent 50 white residents to protest allowing children of color to play in the park. The mayor said, oh, trust me, I feel the exact same way. The mayor who appointed the park board, who decided whether or not children of color could play in a park. Black residents needed to be there too to voice their opinions. Showing up was so important. Here's Ida Jones. So she really wanted the the women who would serve as
1: liaisons or delegates to various city agencies to kind of do reconnaissance and intel gathering, that they would go in sets of two. And that she asked the women, it's very strategized in her collection, that you were to be dressed appropriately, you were to be punctual, and you were also to give your kind of rank and serial, uh, missus or Miss. Registered voter, citizen of the city of Baltimore, interested in democratic government. So she was very clear that there was scripted language and then also coupled with one's dress and adornment to be able to present the African American community as interested consciously,
0: interested civically, and interested politically in how the direction of the city would go. By showing up, they showed their power. Through their advocacy, committee members convinced the Baltimore City School Board to build a new vocational high school for African Americans not in the red light district as planned, but in a much more upscale part of town. For the first time, a black high school in Baltimore had adjacent playing fields and green space. They also convinced major Baltimore hotels to start taking black customers, at least when they were connected to conventions and large meetings. Victorine didn't stop at City Hall or even the State House in Annapolis. She took groups of women to Congress and to the White House Ida's book includes photos of Victorine shaking hands with senators, mayors, governors. She's always meticulously dressed. Pearls, gloves, nylons, patent leather shoes with bows. Not too much, not too little, but not a hair out of place. Still, everything wasn't always picture perfect for Victorine. She and Willie had a near-death experience early in their marriage. In the dead of night, while they slept, an explosion rocked their apartment and the surrounding city blocks. Here's Mark Cheshire.
3: There were reports of this sound all the way on the east side and the south side. It was quite the explosion. Um, People calling to police, like, what's just happened? The police showed up quickly thereafter and they saw somebody in the backseat of a getaway car with maroon eyes, allegedly, and they tracked and tracked and tracked and they finally tracked the car down and it was linked to the murder of three African-American numbers runners in another city. So these people were really very serious.
0: Willie had ignored threats from a numbers organization in another city, demanding that he give over part of his business or be killed. So they firebombed the tavern he owned, which happened to be beneath their apartment. Willie and Victorine survived, and remarkably, no one was hurt. But the episode was enough to push them fully into legitimate and legal businesses. Victorine and Willie moved to the Baltimore neighborhood of Hanlon Park in 1949. They're the first Black family to integrate the all-white upper-class neighborhood. They pay well over the asking price to appease the builder because they know he'll face harassment for selling to African Americans. Their basement becomes a second location for meetings and the hub for political campaigns. But it comes at a price. Here's Mark Cheshire.
3: There were those who were troubled enough by Will and Victorine's move that it sparked opposition to take action against him that that may have led to some very zealous prosecution of him. The theory, it's not proven, but it's not inconceivable.
0: About four years after their move into the white neighborhood, Willie gets arrested on federal charges related to the numbers game. He decides to come clean and testify before Congress under the condition that he'll get immunity. So he does, he tells them everything. Then the state uses that testimony to charge him with state crimes. He takes his state level conviction all the way to the US Supreme Court, who overturns the ruling and says he'd been denied his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. By now, he's a legitimate businessman. He owns all kinds of stuff. Grocery stores, dry cleaners. He launched a beverage called Joe Lewis Punch with his buddy and famed boxer Joe Lewis. Let's just say it wasn't a knockout. But many of his other businesses were. Perhaps the most successful and most well-known is Parks Sausages. Here's Mark Cheshire.
3: Uh, he was the money and the partner of Park Sausage. Was the first company owned and operated by an African American to go public on Wall Street, uh, which was a really big, a really significant step forward. The CEO of that company, Henry Parks, was on the cover of Business Week. So, a really remarkable deal.
0: Even more remarkable was what Willie and Victorine did to encourage business ownership in the Black community. Back then. African Americans couldn't get loans from white banks, i.e. banks. But Willie was so influential that he single-handedly changed all that. He took $60,000 in cash to a bank, which is over a million dollars in today's dollars, and told the banker to put it in a safety deposit box and use it as a line of credit to give Black businesses loans. If anyone failed to make a payment, the bank could just take the money from Willie's box. So... Thousands of people took out small loans to start their businesses, and they got to build credit from a banking institution. This was life-changing. Here's Mark Cheshire again.
3: But he definitely promoted the entrepreneurship of others. That he, he wanted them to be owners as well, to have leadership, and, you know, and also not to have to, to work if one could even secure a job in a, in a white business, to not have to necessarily work under these conditions.
0: In 1948, Willie took over Carr's Beach, a beach reserved just for African-American recreation during a time when humiliating whites-only signs marked much of the popular coastal destinations. Car's Beach was a sanctuary. No one told you where to sit or how to be. The atmosphere was like a festival, and Willie made sure it was a good one.
2: Hey, how would you like to see all the top recording stars this summer? Well, you can at Cards Beach in Annapolis. This season will be jam-packed with the greatest stars of the musical field. Just listen to a few of the greats that will be hitting your way. May the 29th is Tanner Terrell. May the 30th, James Brown. June the 12th, Wilson Pickett. June the 19th, the all-time great Jimmy Smith. June the 26th, Otis Redding and many more great artists to follow. You don't want to miss any of these great, great shows. So make plans now to be president at Cards Beach. In Annapolis, Maryland,
0: entertainment capital of the East Coast. With his resources, Adams expanded both the entertainment and recreation opportunities for old and young alike, adding a music venue and an amusement park to Cars Beach. By the 1950s, Cars Beach was a regular stop for the biggest African-American musical acts, like Billie Holiday, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Ella Fitzgerald. Soul legends like Ray Charles and James Brown, and rock and roll pioneers like Fats Domino and Buddy Holly, also performed at Cars Beach. On July 21, 1956, an estimated 70,000 people traveled to Cars Beach to hear Chuck Berry perform. Although only 8,000 made it past the gates because the grounds were filled beyond capacity. Over time, as Cars Beach grew into the 1960s and integration became possible, it was one of the first venues in Maryland with a large interracial clientele.
3: Typical Will fashion, everything was done behind the scenes. He maintained a very low profile for good strategic reasons, but also by disposition. That seems to be very much who he was. And it's interesting. I, in what I know about Victorine, it seems the same. She devoted herself to so many causes that, and interests that weren't going to bring her great publicity or renown or to raise dollars for fundraising. She took on causes for people in penury and people in need, and really did the work opposed to the, the preening. So they were very similar in that regard. They were very much partners.
0: So while Cars Beach is hopping and the Charm Center is poppin', Victorine is quietly and personally transforming life for the most marginalized. Granting them the same measure of respect and dignity she gives to supermodels and to stars. In the 1930s, governments formed a series of schools across the nation for orphaned or derelict children, often victims of the Great Depression. President Hoover formed a commission to study the conditions of these facilities. Three schools in Maryland were cited as subpar, including the Barrett Training School for Colored Girls in Baltimore. Investigations found that the young women were beaten and shackled and given minimal classroom education or physical activity. They were treated as less than human. Victorine as an educator and civic leader was appointed by the governor to oversee reforms at the school in 1946, and she stayed there for 10 years. She treated these young women, who had been abandoned and neglected, no differently than the women she served at the Charm Center. She fought for them to have access to real education so they could leave with high school diplomas and get jobs. She taught them the same charm courses and home economics essentials that she taught the debutantes in Baltimore. She connected the forgotten young women at the school with her vast network of women's clubs and set them up to enter society with every tool they needed to succeed. Almost like the daughter she never had, here's Ida Jones
1: but this was a personal close family friend who mentioned that there was a non-viable birth. And I wanna say it must've been in the first 15 to 20 years of her marriage. And so as a result, whether she just never tried again or it never happened again, that just kind of went to the wayside. So I think being a teacher and involving children in every aspect of her career and her life really made the difference for her so that she saw herself as mothering the
0: community. In 1954, The Colored Women's Democratic Campaign Committee took its strongest position in its eight-year existence, backing a Black candidate for state Senate to run against Jack Pollock's candidate. Harry Cole was a 33-year-old lawyer and World War II veteran. He had run two unsuccessful campaigns previously, but somehow the committee decided that with its help, he could beat Jack Pollock in his own home district of Northwest Baltimore. To prepare for the fight, the committee registered another 4,000 new voters and continued to equip and encourage existing voters. And Harry Cole won. He was the first Black person in the Maryland State Senate. Victorine said, Harry Cole opened the floodgates because his victory proved we could do it. He showed that Black people were organized and were a real electoral threat. Now, every candidate had to listen to their demands. Harry Cole, he was the right guy for the job. So many politicians promise a lot during campaigns and then win their seat and play it completely safe just so they can keep it. But he wasn't looking out for himself. He was looking out for his people, who had gone far too long without representation. Upon taking office, Cole gave Governor Theodore McKeldin 18 requests, including insisting that the race classification be removed from applications for state jobs, He worked to have magistrates, like lower-level judges, removed from the political process. This was a major blow to Pollock, who controlled many of those positions. He also worked out a deal that he'd nominate a white man for parole commissioner, as long as that man agreed to name the state's first black parole officer. And he did. Harry Cole lost to a Pollock candidate four years later, but his impact was lasting. And get this, Pollock's candidate was Black, a first. Pollock realized he needed to shift his strategy and his loyalty. Times had officially changed. Next, it was time for Black women to take matters into their own hands by running for office. And several of the firsts in the state owe their elections to Victorine. She first backed Verda Welcome, who became the first Black woman, not just in Maryland, but in the entire United States, to serve as a state senator. She served from 1963 to 1982. She's credited with dismantling the laws that restricted access to Maryland hotels and public places. And she led the fight to grow Morgan State College into Morgan State University. Victorine also backed Irma George Dixon and Lena Lee, who were elected to the House of Delegates. All three women were teachers, just like Victorine. In a kind of surprising twist, Victorine, she ran for office herself. After losing in a city council election, she won a seat on the House of Delegates in 1966, only to give it up when she had the chance to fill a vacancy on Baltimore's city council just one year later. She became the first black woman to serve on the city council after a successful race in 1967. By then, Baltimore had experienced tremendous upheaval. Between school desegregation and the unrest following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the city experienced tremendous white flight to the suburbs. Major manufacturers began to downsize or leave. There were few jobs and bleak prospects. Victorine dedicated herself to the causes of the most marginalized people in her district, a far-reaching swath of Baltimore that included 130,000 people. Here's Ida Jones. When she takes
1: uh, her position as a city council person, was not a racialized agenda. It was an equitable agenda for those individuals who've been marginalized and voiceless within city and state politics. So a lot of what they sought to do was to equitize opportunity and therefore broaden the scope of who has access and how that access can benefit the
0: community. In her four terms on city council, Victorine focused primarily on unemployment and homelessness, working to extend unemployment benefits during a difficult time. She helped to create job training programs for people displaced by the loss of manufacturing jobs, like Bethlehem Steel, so they might be able to instead work for Johns Hopkins, which required more technical skills and training. In one of her proudest accomplishments, she created more than a thousand jobs by bringing a US Social Security Administration office building to West Baltimore. She also convinced the mayor to award the contract for management of Baltimore's Inner Harbor Arena to a black businessman. In fact, she convinced the mayor of a lot of things, according to one of her colleagues at the time. Victorine served alongside two other women on the council, Mary Pat Clark and future U.S. Senator Barbara Mikulski. It's fair to say they didn't all have the same experience. Here's recently retired councilwoman Clark.
2: They called us council girls. I mean, it was, first of all, they did not do this to Mrs. Adams. Okay, she 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 just scared the heck out of them, knew that she came from a political organization of great strength and that she so she got there the way they got there. And that was how you got there. And they worked with her all the time. And she didn't get into struggles or scraps ever in a public setting, maybe privately, but not what that I ever saw. She but she was. Steely in her determination um, for the community. So basically, Victorine was the grand dame of the Baltimore City Council, and um, she had Mayor William Donald Schaefer wrapped around her velvet glove over
0: steel fist. Here's David Taftary explaining why Victorine scared the heck out of the other elected officials.
5: Just. A bit of baltimore criminology Uh, after brown versus the board of education you know white flight escalates so certainly by the time you get to the mid-1960s anyone who is interested in holding political office of significance like mayor understands that you're not getting there without the black vote so the notion for example white women politicians may have been treated differently than Black women politicians is because in the eyes of someone like Schaefer, you know, Victorine had power, Uh, she was the way in which you got to the Black vote, or to say it differently, uh, she could be the means by which you lost the Black vote.
0: I want to take a minute to talk about the Black vote. Should this be a monumental moment? Let's do it. Let's make it a monumental moment. The Black vote. Something really stood out to me from my interview with Tony Draper in Episode 5. I didn't include it in that episode, but I'll include it here. I asked her if there were any Afro headlines over the paper's 120-plus year history that stood out to her. I think the
1: one that sticks out in my mind because I was um, young in school was when John F. Kennedy was elected president and the headline read in like 96-point type. Our vote did it. So our, our vote did it. Um, the, that's the headline that really sticks out in my mind.
0: When JFK won the presidency, the Afro headline read in 96-point type, Our vote did it. The Black vote made the difference. They made up less than 11% of the population, but still, by banding together, African Americans provided that powerful swing vote that Adam Clayton Powell talked about that moved Victorine to action. Does this sound familiar, like 2020 familiar? If you haven't been comparing Victorine Adams to Stacey Abrams in your head throughout this episode, well, it's never too late to start. Here's Fair Fight founder Stacey Abrams on the eve of the recent Senate runoff in Georgia.
1: What we've seen over the last decade has been a steady change in demography, but we know that electoral politics always lag behind demographic change. And what we've been able to do in this state is really acknowledge, harness, and now invest in that demographic change. And the reality is that trend is not going to reverse itself. We are going to continue to see a diversification of the state of Georgia. By the end of this decade, we assume uh, a lot of the projections say that Georgia will be a majority-minority state. And what that will signal is that any party that wants to be competitive in the state is going to have to reckon with what it means to address the issues of health care, of jobs, and of justice. Those are the conversations we're having in this election. And those are the conversations that will continue until we come to a resolution that truly serves all of the people of Georgia.
0: Just like Victorine, Stacey Abrams helped to shift a conservative-leaning electorate to the left by organizing and empowering Black women to register new voters, 800,000 new voters to be exact. Her work helped to elect a Black person to the U.S. Senate from Georgia for the very first time, Raphael Warnock. Much like Victorine helped Harry Cole become the first in Maryland state Senate. While Stacey Abrams is certainly her own brand of powerful, she without question builds on the legacy of women like Victorine Adams. So these women are organizers. Have you ever wondered what it means to be an organizer? Like, how does this work? Here's an example from Victorine's catalog, The Time She Saved Provident Hospital. At the time it was founded, Provident Hospital was the only place for Black people to be treated by Black doctors and the only place for Black doctors and nurses to train. It opened in 1894, and by 1962, the strained hospital was in need of a new facility. Victorine led the charge. Organizing is breaking down a huge goal, like saving a hospital into small bites. She started by sending out a mailer to every household. It asked for three things. First, for people to vote yes on the ballot measure for the loan to build the new hospital. Second, to help raise the matching funds needed. And third, to volunteer as a block or precinct captain and go door to door to ensure everyone on their own block was doing the same. Her new organization, Woman Power, founded the Century Club. Finding 100 women willing to raise $100 each for the hospital, They held a raffle for a donated car. Willie and Victorine brought their famous friends like Joe Lewis and Marguerite Belafonte to a charity golf tournament. They got the city's fraternities, sororities, women's clubs, church groups, all to band together to reach their goals. And they did. At one point, they set out to raise $60,000 and raised $1 million instead. Victorine also used her organizing power and her own personal resources to fight for those struggling to get by after a series of terrible tragedies. Here's Ida Jones.
1: It was the blizzard of 1978 when the whole East Coast was literally under feet of snow. And the fuel company at the time would just cut off your utilities because you didn't have the money paid. The balance wasn't zero. And this kind of callous indifference towards the needs of persons who, at a time of crises, could not pay their bill, which was, I think, a median amount of $200 per person was uh, egregious. And then several people, I want to say four persons or four incidences, happened where there were fires and fatal
0: outcomes. So this blizzard came at a time of soaring high fuel prices in the nation's first energy crisis. During this blizzard, many families had their heat turned off, so they turned to alternate heating sources to stay warm. Perhaps space heaters or maybe open flames. Their houses caught on fire, and at least four people died this way in Victorine's district, including one elderly couple. Beyond even those deaths, many families were suffering and on the brink of freezing.
1: And this really infuriated Victorine to the point of creating legislation in the Baltimore Fuel Fund, which was a public-private partnership to create a fund where people could get assistance to pay the difference. So you pay what you have and we will match that or help ameliorate the difference of the balance.
0: And that was huge. Victorine founded the Baltimore Fuel Fund, which is now known as the Maryland Fuel Fund, to ensure that no one died this way again. Willie and Victorine were personal contributors to the Fuel Fund, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Today, a network of fuel funds across the nation fulfills Victorine's vision. Last year in Maryland alone, nearly 20,000 people received support from the fund to pay their gas and electric bills and keep their heat on. In 1978, the state of Maryland hires Willie Adams to run its now totally legal state lottery. Ain't that something? Victorine retires from the city council in 1983 after four terms. She said she was tired, and I don't blame her. She and Willie obviously didn't stop doing all they could to help improve Baltimore for those struggling around them. To this day, the William L. and Victorine Q. Adams Foundation provides college scholarships to Baltimore City students. Here's David Taft Terry.
5: So, uh, Victorine's Adams' example and her involvement in the creation of Black voter registration, Black education, uh, Black voter activism was not simply important in a model here in Baltimore, but a model for the entire South. 10 years after she organizes her uh, Black women's Democratic political organization in Baltimore, between her work and the work of the NAACP in voter education, Baltimore garners a national, representation, uh, national reputation for its role in developing Black voter projects in, in uh, Black voter uh, uh, strategies, uh, so much so that when Martin Luther King starts his Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957, the person he taps to come and run SCLC's voter education projects is a Baltimore pastor, John Tilley, who cut his teeth working in voter education projects under Black women in Baltimore, like Juanita Mitchell of the NAACP, in cooperation with people like Victorine Adams. So uh, the net of what she is able to do just from her personal motivation and the personal wherewithal that her businesses uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue was able to provide had wide impact and lasting impact.
0: On our next and final Profile episode, we'll learn about another woman whose personal motivation changed history. You think you know the story of the woman who refused to give up her seat on the bus? Think again. Who Deserves a Monument is developed, written, and produced by me, Sarah Lonis, with sound design, editing, and mixing by Chloe Vantel. Our cover art is by Deshaun Fortune. Ida Jones's book is Baltimore civil rights leader Victorine Q. Adams' The Power of the Ballot. Mark Cheshire's book is They Call Me Little Willie. I'd like to thank David Taft Terry and Councilwoman Mary Pat Clark. Who Deserves a Monument is a production of Booksmart Media. See you next time.